All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called Emission. And Emission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit technipfmc.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for DOE's Upstream Oil and Gas Research Program. I retired from the DOE just over a year ago and founded a small consultancy and became a podcast host. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to thank Technip FMC, our sponsor. And I want to ask you to do me a big favor by answering a one-question survey. It takes about 10 seconds, and the link is in the show notes. In return, we'll happily send you some stickers for your laptop or hard hat. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Bjorn Paulson. Hi, Bjorn. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you so much, Elena, for having me. Great. Let me tell you a little bit about Bjorn's accomplishments. He is the CEO and president of Paulson, Inc. in Van Nuys, California, which is near Los Angeles. He's invented and designed several important borehole seismic instruments, and he formed Paulson, Inc. in 2009 to continue his work in advanced borehole seismology. Bjorn has worked with borehole seismology since 1977 and has published over 50 papers in the field. Bjorn, that's quite impressive. I want you to tell us about your work, but before you do, tell us how borehole seismology fits into the world of upstream oil and gas and other related sectors. Well, borehole seismology, uh, thank you for the question, Elena. Um, The borehole seismology is the next step in resolution spectrum for for seismology. Surface seismic is the standard technique to discover and map oil fields. And it has a certain resolution depending on the, uh, due to the frequency uh, we can record from the surface. But once you put sensors, sources, and, uh, and receivers in boreholes, we can do 10 times higher resolution with the seismic uh, borehole sensors than you can get from, uh, than you can do from the surface. Oh, that's, I, that's wonderful. So we get to get more information for the same well, almost the same technology, or at least the same approach, but you get better understanding of the results and better understanding of what's in the subsurface. Is that about right? That's correct. Uh, Geology is a complex medium, and we need high resolution to understand the geology and how the geology controls the fluid flow of oil and gas and geothermal resources, and of course, in the future, carbon sequestration and and other and and storage of natural gas so they the high resolution images are very important great 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 so tell us about your company paulson inc well paulson inc is a small high technology company and we focus 
on uh, all optical sensors. We have developed the most sensitive seismic sensors in the in the world in the uh, in the uh, energy business. We also develop optical pressure sensors and optical uh, acoustic temperature strain sensor and apply that for different 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 parts of the oil and gas and the energy industry. Okay, so to give us a better understanding of how this all works, um, what, what might your sensor look like? Well, our smallest uh, sensor uh, is actually just a line of fiber, uh, typically a hundred micron fiber, uh, a tenth of a millimeter. Uh, and uh, we are uh, deploying that, we can deploy that uh, uh, over, over many kilometers because the fiber itself uh, is too fragile to, to deploy by itself. So we put that into a cable, which is uh, a few millimeters in diameter. So that is our distributed sensor. Uh, we also have uh, point sensors, our seismic sensors. And the sensor itself is basically the size of your fingertip, uh, uh, a, a cubic centimeter. Uh, we have bigger sensors, uh, uh, a, a, about a cubic, uh, cubic inch in, in size, and then we, we encapsulate those sensors into pod housings, and, and which are, are, are protects the sensors from the, the uh, environment we deploy the sensors in. Excellent, excellent. So, so how did you get into oil and gas, and how did you get into sensors? And isn't sensor technology kind of... Um, well, it's been around a little while, so kind of help us with, with some of that. Maybe you are the reason why it's been around a while after all those papers you've written. Well, I started the, the, my PhD thesis on time-lapse imaging on nuclear waste. So actually, I did the first industry uh, survey for uh, using time-lapse tomography, monitoring a rock mass uh, uh, where we inserted a simulated nuclear waste canister. And we saw very significant effect on the rock from that heat load from that nuclear waste canister, or simulated nuclear waste canister. And then when I went in, got into the oil and gas industry, working with Chevron Oilfield Research Company, I started to see the need for large arrays. When I entered the industry, we, uh, we had uh, only single level sensors. Today, uh, we have deployed for PG&E 2,500 sensors in a six kilometer or 6,000 feet borehole. So, so the large sensor arrays is essential. Basically, large antennas are essential to be uh, have effective data acquisition uh, when you do surveys. So, PG&E is in California, Pacific Gas and Electric. So, so what is their interest in sensors? We, we have a deployment, current deployment uh, in, in a, their McDonald Island gas storage facility just south of Sacramento, where we have monitored the underground gas storage. And this is one of the 412 sites around the United States operating as under, for underground gas storage. And this is the eighth largest in the, in, in the United States. So it's a very big facility with, with 84 wells. And they, they saw a need uh, to monitor this, to develop technology to monitor this efficiently. Maybe you remember, remember the, uh, the, the big gas uh, uh, 
failure of a well in the in Los Angeles, just north of Los Angeles, yes. where the, the entire a gas storage field was emptied due to a faulty casing. So we need to monitor it. And we we monitored that for a year now and recorded uh, over five, 530 terabytes of data monitoring this underground gas storage field. And there's been a very effective and very, um, very efficient program for the monitoring uh, and serving of that underground gas storage field. And in the gas storage field, are you still... Um... Uh, monitoring seismic activity, or are you monitoring something else? That's right. We we using our uh, for this particular installation. We're using acoustic sensors and temperature sensors, and this was funded by or is funded by California Energy Commission grant. So to demonstrate how we can store underground gas safely and efficiently, and of course that also uh, uh, translates into technology we can store green hydrogen in the future when we start to use hydrogen uh, as a means to store energy okay okay so so back to the oil and gas applications um, where where and how do we use um, this technology well we use it by uh, monitor or uh, survey where is the residual oil in a, in a, in an oil field and we have done surveys where we map the oil field uh, with our seismic sensors and then the operator has uh, drilled new boreholes and found uh, unproduced oil and again today we only uh, recover 35 percent or one-third of the oil in the oil and gas reservoir so in known places we have enormous new resources if we can do perform high resolution imaging and monitoring so it's and we have proven that in the number of surveys in the past that this is a very inefficient very efficient technique so with respect to conventional reservoirs i i i've heard of that one third you know two thirds still left in the ground does this also have application in unconventional reservoirs uh, absolutely in unconventional uh, oil and gas reservoir, we're only producing about 5 to 8% of the oil in the reservoir. So we're leaving more than 90% of the oil behind in well-known places. So, so the most efficient way and very, I think the most environmental way to produce oil and gas is to go into already existing oil and gas fields uh, and, and produce the oil, which is we already know is there. Bjorn, tell us about this technology and what are the benefits to oil and gas producers uh, who use your technology? When we put our sensor arrays, remember, these are large seismic antennas. And we can uh, produce, uh, we record data from the, either a surface seismic source or another uh, seismic source in another borehole. And with that information, we can, we can generate a very accurate velocity model, much more accurate than if you're using just surface seismic sensors. So the first benefit is to get a better velocity model to use with their surface seismic uh, data they have recorded. Uh, second is, is that's a both P and S-wave velocity model, comp compressional and shear wave velocity model. 
we also can generate a very accurate anisotropic velocity model with helps the operator sharpen up the image that they get from the surface seismic. But we also generate a, a standalone seismic reflection image, uh, uh, three-dimensional uh, uh, three, uh, 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 three borehole seismic image using our borehole seismic sensors, which has anywhere from two to five times the frequency content of the surface sensor. So with it, uh, uh, and of course, frequencies relates directly to the resolution. So we get two to five times the resolution when we when we uh, develop the three three these images based on uh, um, borehole seismic sensors, and so these images help operators understand where the uh, oil and gas is and what they and then they can develop strategies on how to produce it. Is that about right? That's correct because the depth it, when you do an imaging of a geologic structure. The depth of that feature, of the geologic feature, depends on the velocity model. So we will provide the operator depth-correct geological images, uh, and, and not only of, of sands and, and shales, but also of faults, which are often a, a fluid boundary in oil and gas reservoirs. So a, a much thinner resolution of the beds but also where they truncate against faults and, and other, other uh, structures. Yeah, that, that's so important because in the oil and gas sector, we actually are always operating almost blind. We can't see what we are working on. It's not like there's a tank underground that you can actually measure and uh, uh, manipulate in, in ways that you want to. You really are at the mercy of what has been laid down in terms of the types of rocks, the location of the different rocks, the changes in the rocks, where the um, uh, fluid is going to be uh, more easily moved. And the, all of that information is not something that we can readily see, whereas on the surface, people can actually see what they do. So giving this uh, subsurface picture of what's going on down there and uh, then, then gives us insight as to how we can manipul manipulate it for best advantage, that's, that's really important. That's really exciting. And that's not limited to the oil and gas sector, is it? No, it's in every sector which operates in the subsurface, like a geothermal, carbon capture and utilization and storage, or carbon capture and storage, uh, underground gas uh, uh, storage, uh, and anything has to do with the subsurface can benefit from high-resolution images. And so are there some applications that you've been part of already that are outside of oil and gas, but subsurface? Uh, we currently do a big project with PG&E uh, for underground gas storage. We have done surveys uh, with COSO for geothermal energy. We, have, uh, we are looking at doing surveys uh, in, uh, outside California in geothermal fields with other geothermal operators uh, to, to better understand not just the geology, but also the fluid flow in those fractured uh, reservoirs, which makes up the enhanced geothermal systems, uh, uh, which is where the most of the uh, geothermal energy resides. So the geothermal is a pretty extreme environment, um, extremely hot, extremely high pressure, and 
and the the sensors are are comfortable down there. They they're capable of, of still working in those extreme environments. Is that right? That's correct. There uh, there has been some failures of regular geofilm based systems in, for instance, in the in the Forge project uh, at at as low temperature as uh, less than two hundred degrees Celsius. We have tested our all optical sensors to 320 degrees Celsius, 608 degrees Fahrenheit for a week. And, and they're very comfortable at those higher temperatures, which is uh, where the best geothermal reservoirs uh, are. Yeah, yeah. And so applications uh, beyond that in, uh, as you said, um, carbon storage, What? Uh, how would one use the technology in that environment? Uh, carbon capture uh, or the storage part of the, the, the uh, CCUS or CCS, we need to inject enormous amount of CO2 into the subsurface in order to, to slow down the global warming. Because obviously the CO2 in the atmosphere becomes a, a, the, the greenhouse effect and the atmosphere uh, heats up and it's already been a significant heat up of the rest of the atmosphere. Uh, so we need to inject that in a way so that the CO2 it stays in the subsurface and after a period of time, it, it gets crystallized and becomes part of the rock matrix. But uh, that is a process. We plan to drill in the next 20 years, 14,000 wells for, do, for, for store the CO2 in the subsurface. And that needs to be done in the ways that we can control it and understand what, how the CO2 stays in the subsurface. And can these sensors give us insights about the quality of the storage reservoir? Is it um, something that could be used in that arena? We, absolutely. We did a project with Battelle a, a few years ago, and we could actually demonstrate that we could hear the flow of the CO2 in the fractured medium as a carbonate reservoir we were monitoring. And geophones, uh, uh, the year before we did our survey recorded, no uh, microseismic events at all. With our optical accelerometer, due to their larger bandwidth and much higher sensitivity, over a, a period of a, a less than a month, we recorded half a million microseismic events, which directly tied into the flow of the CO2 into the fractured rock. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that seems like a, a very important capability we would need to have in order to make carbon storage, um, you know, ultimately viable in the long term. Is there any um, application for this sensor? I mean, I'm just asking, I don't know, because to me, sensors are sensors. Um, but is there any uh, application in terms of monitoring um, that the CO2 stays in the subsurface? Um, is that an application? Well, as we said, uh, uh, we can hear the flow of the CO2 uh, in the subsurface with our, our, our optical accelerometers. If you hear a flow away from the from the, the storage reservoir into other areas of the subsurface, we can monitor that. We can hear that, uh, and and eventually we can see a crystallization of the carbon CO2 uh, uh, forming a new rock matrix. So we we should, in the long term, actually see a solidification of the CO2 of the, of the uh, when we inject the CO2, is a 
supercritical uh, fluid. And eventually that will turn into a crystal matrix uh, into, the, into the rock. And that we should both be able to monitor the flow as well as the crystallization of, of, the, of the CO2 in, in the rock, uh, rock mass where we inject it into it. And does the crystallization reduce the permeability or the pore space in the, in the storage reservoir? It probably will, but then we have permanently stored that CO2 in, the, in, in that rock mass. So the crystallization uh -huh. uh, and, and, the, and the forming of new minerals in the subsurface is actually a positive effect. Yes, we are, we are likely reducing the permeability, but that really is what we want to do. Uh, uh, and want to achieve that permanent storage of the CO2. So you kind of have to put that CO2 sort of at the bottom of the reservoir and sort of fill it up if you're going to mineralize it going, you know, up. That, that's right. We, we need to put the CO2 into a um, maybe an old gas reservoir, which has been shown to hold the gas, and then uh, uh, has to be a, a layer above that storage uh, 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 rock to keep the CO2 into the ground, uh, in the ground while it's being crystallized. Well, you know a lot about carbon storage, but, w but we're here to talk about borehole seismology. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> I went on that little tangent for you. So, so what have I not asked you about borehole seismology and, and its capabilities and the benefits and where people use it and how they should use it and why they should use it? What are some other things you'd like to share about that? Well, other areas uh, where we can use our sensors is to uh, in the methane hydrate development. We have done a survey up on the north slope of Alaska to mapping methane hydrate, and we were actually able to, because of the high sensitivity, map where the methane hydrate resides in the subsurface, because the methane hydrate is methane uh, trapped in, in ice crystals and can be a very important source for for, it can be a very important source for, for energy for our country, but it can also be a threat because of due to the global warming, that methane can be released into the atmosphere and it is a very aggressive greenhouse gas. Uh, so we need to first understand uh, the, where it is in the subsurface and how we keep it into the subsurface. And if we produce it, that we don't get let it be have an uncontrolled release into the atmosphere because that then we we have uh, we have uh, that that's obviously a danger long-term danger for our global warming yeah yeah and um if i could take you back to the unconventionals and the hydraulic fracturing associated with um with that um is there an application to give us some sense of the extent of the fractures the quality of the fracture network, that we're getting fractures, that the fractures are staying in the zone? Is there some of that um, insight about the, um, about the reservoir that can be gained through the use of, this, of the borehole seismology? Absolutely. The, when you fracture a rock, you generate uh, for, for unconventional oil and gas, you're injecting propane. And we develop a technique with, uh, together with a company called TURVS uh, in, uh, in um, uh, in, in, I think it's in Texas, and where we, where we mix up the, the uh, propent with small silica uh, balls uh, um, and then inject that together. And eventually those silica balls 
implode and generate a seismic signal, an acoustic signal. So we can map where those acoustic signals come from. So therefore, we can map where the propent goes into the into the fractures in unconventional. So it's a it's a working with other techniques and our our very sensitive sensors. We're able to to do it more detailed, more precise mapping of other sort of dynamic production processes as well. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's see. We're kind of getting to the end of our of our time here. What are some of the things that perhaps you want to share with our audience about uh, the future of upstream, the future of technology, the, fu the future uh, potential for um, borehole seismology? Uh, just share with our audience some some things, that, some of your thoughts. You're obviously a thought leader. Um, you're with uh, uh, a professional, you're with the Society of Petroleum Engineers, I'm sorry, and SEG. And tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll go into this other question. Tell us about your experience with professional societies and what you've been doing in that front. Yeah, I'm, I'm a 30-year member of Society of Exploration Geophysicists. Uh, I'm a 20-year member of Society of Petroleum Engineers, and it's very important to support our professional societies because they, they work hard on, on, on developing technologies, uh, promote technologies, and it's through technologies we will be able to uh, manage our, I mean, the issues we have with global warming and energy, uh, uh, access to, to green energy, uh, storage of green energy, uh, production of geothermal energy in the future. So all all of those, the, the societies are are I I I find I think is a are a critical members of that both education and and technology development process. And you've been a you've been generous with your time to the societies, having been a distinguished lecturer for SPE. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, when I was a, I was a distinguished lecturer for Society of Petroleum Engineers and spent uh, uh, about a month traveling around the world, giving lectures, uh, 20, 29 lectures in, uh, uh, in 22 days in, uh, in uh, about uh, 15 different countries, starting with uh, in uh, North America, Europe, Middle East, Asia, uh, and, and then uh, back, back to the United States. So it was a it was a fantastic experience to meet all the professionals around the world and, and share uh, of, of the, uh, with them my experience and knowledge uh, again in, in the area of borehole seismology. So, so that again is a way to share the technologies we develop in the United States with, with, uh, with, uh, with other, other, other countries and, and other, other areas of, uh, uh, which work on, on, on borehole seismology in my case. Excellent, excellent. Well, you've certainly made a wonderful contribution to the um, Society of Petroleum Engineers, SEG, um, to the uh, oil and gas sector itself. You're making contributions in other areas as well. Um, you published 50 papers, it says here. Are they all on borehole seismology? Were there other areas, or were you kind of key in advancing the state of the art, state of that technology over the course of, of your career, basically? Well, I think by and large, it's been in borehole seismology. The different aspects of borehole seismology started with 
uh, geothermal. Actually, that was my very first paper in uh, 1977, uh, followed by the nuclear waste using borehole seismic for nuclear waste storage, uh, followed then, of course, working with Chevron. It was focused in oil and gas. And, and the, the last few years, we have published a number of papers on technology development, sensor development, seismic source development for boreholes. And that's a particular interest to me, uh, to me is, is to put seismic sources, uh, vibratory seismic sources in, in boreholes to, to generate high frequency signals, which gets us the high frequency resolution um, uh, images. So, so um, it's been, been a very rewarding journey uh, and, and uh, um, in, in all aspects of, 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 you can, of technologies and people we met and the, the, the industry is full of absolutely fa fascinating and, and very, uh, very generous people. And, and it's been a great industry to, to, to work in. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. And in terms of full disclosure, you know, we've, we've worked together in the past. I had the privilege of coming out to Van Nuys and visiting your facilities there. And, and there was something kind of special um, that I learned when I was there. And I wonder if you could ask a, 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 a tell our audience about that. It has to do with Casablanca. <laughs> That's right. Uh, our, our back fence, our facility, we have a 12,000 square foot state-of-the-art the sensor facility. The back fence is the Van Nuys Airport. Uh, and the Van Nuys Airport is where the movie Casablanca was filmed. And uh, so uh, they play it again. Sam is, uh, is, uh, <laughs> is part, of, part of our, our uh, internal, uh, internal sort of mantra in the company. So, so yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating, fascinating history of that airport as well. It was actually, it was LAX before LAX. Oh really? The Van Nuys Airport was LAX before it was before LAX was uh, that, built. Oh, I did not know that. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. I'm from California, so. Uh, and and the 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 presidential 747 has landed there. Uh, it's a long enough air uh, runway to to take big planes as well. Oh my goodness! My goodness! Well, I'm afraid that we are out of time. Um, but before you go, maybe. Um, uh, we, you, I'll give you one last chance, perhaps, if there's anything else you would like to share about, uh, about borehole seismology, um, about oil and gas, about the uh, future of energy. Are there any last little tidbits you'd like to share with the audience? Well, I'm, I'm focused on quality of data and, and to develop energy, especially the new green energies, we need to have good sensors and they operate at high temperature and pressures. Uh, I mean, th that's, that's how we get the good data. We need the robust high performance sensors. And, uh, I think, uh, our, our team at Paulson can deliver those sensors. Well, that's wonderful. Well, Dr. Bjorn Paulson, thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing all about the advanced borehole seismology and its contributions to upstream oil and gas and other sectors. I think we learned a lot. I certainly learned a lot. Um, and, I, and I so much appreciate you for um, joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Elena. It's been a great pleasure to be with you and, and uh, I have really enjoyed it. So thank you so, thank you so much for, on behalf of myself and our entire team. Well, that's it. Thanks again, Dr. Bjorn Paulson. 
And I thank everyone for listening. Uh, before you leave, I hope you'll give us a review. We want to know what you like to hear and what you'd like to hear more about on future podcasts. And so this is Elena Melker, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.